Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Welcome to The Rest is History, and we kick off uh, today's episode, the final episode of our London Week, with very, very sad news, Tom. Yeah. (laughs) We've been sitting by the phone, haven't we? Two episodes ago, we ended on a cliffhanger. (laughs) Well, to discover whether Netflix or some other streaming giant would take us up on our um, suggestion of a TV series, a a, a best-selling blockbuster TV series, um, based on the life of Henry Fielding and his brother John and the Bow Street Runners, um, with future possible spin-offs involving Dr. Johnson hunting ghosts. I regret to say, Tom, they have stared a gift horse in the mouth. Yeah. They've, they've foolishly thrown away the chance, so we'll be offering it to Amazon starting from now. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, we are sticking with the podcasting lark, so that's good news for some, bad news for people who don't like the podcast, but why would they be listening? Um so we are going to finish off our London week. We've done the walk around Smithfield with the ill-fitting shoes. Uh, we did London people. We had CLR James and Henry Fielding. We had uh, London places. We had the Two Eyes Coffee Bar and we had Barking Abbey. And if you've been with us since the start of the week, you'll remember that we did our walk around Roman London. And we're going to end by each choosing um, a London moment, a kind of a, a cultural moment or a political moment. It could be anything um so i've got mine and tom i think you're going to go first aren't you yeah because mine is chronologically first yeah um and we're going back to the 13th century the reign of henry the third who's the son of king john father of edward the first um and we're going to 1252 which is the year in which uh henry the third was given by hakon the young who was the king of norway a gift and that gift was a polar bear Ooh. So this polar bear had come because um, Hakon the Young, as a Norwegian, had trade links with Iceland and Iceland had links with Greenland. And so there were polar bears that were able to be sourced. Yeah. Um, and obviously a very classy gift because not many kings in, in medieval Europe had a polar bear. So this polar bear was um, kept in the Tower, in the tower of London. Um, it had to wear a, a kind of a collar and a chain to stop it from running off. Right. But its keepers would very kindly allow it to swim in the Thames and hunt fish. Wow! So it would uh, it would jump into the Thames and, and but it's unseasonably around. warm for a polar bear. More intolerable. Yeah, I think warm. the temperatures are quite a bit colder then, weren't they? I mean, you had kind of chilly winters and things. I suppose so. Because it's 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 um it's at, well it's actually it's it's uh, the the start of a kind of ice age period, mini ice age. Um, that will finish off the Viking settlements in Greenland. In Greenland, so it's starting yeah. to happen at this point. So, yes. so perhaps the polar bear was all right. I mean, I agree. I don't think it was great. Um, and the polar bear was not alone. So this is part. This is essentially this is so this is about animals that were kept in the Tower of London. Okay. So the Tower of London uh, was the closest thing that London had to a zoo because it's famous as a menagerie, isn't it? Isn't it? Is this is this when the menagerie is founded? No. So the first the. Fir- 
it, it begins in 1235 when Frederick II, you know, remarkable emperor, Stupor Mundi, one of the, the kind of the most charismatic and remarkable figures of medieval history, would well merit an episode. Yeah. Um, his sister, Eleanor of Provence, um, is marrying Henry III. And so what do you give? What do you give the King of England? Um, you give him three lions. Oh, three lions on the shirt. Um, well, actually, actually, they're, they're, they're leopards. They're leopards. Are they already a symbol of, of England at this point? They are. So right. this is why he gives them. Um, yeah. So it, they're either leopards or lions. They're probably lions, but there's some confusion. Um, so these, these lions are kept in the Tower of London. Um, and then you get the polar bear. So that gets added. Um, and then in 1255, so that's three years after uh, the polar bear has arrived, Louis IX of France sends Henry III an elephant. An elephant? Um, and th- the elephant has its own house, so that's nice. But what's not so nice for the elephant is that um, scholars in Henry III's court think that elephants don't drink water. So they... <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they Why they would just, they think such a stupid thing? <laughs> they just give it wine. So the poor elephant is permanently drunk. A drunken elephant. God, trumpeting, no doubt, at all hours, yeah. So it's very badly behaved um, and, do- and doesn't live very long. Not, no surprise there. So where's the King of France got the, um, the elephant from? I'm not sure. I, guess, I would guess um, from India, so from the Caliphate. Yeah. That's how, because you remember that, that um, Harun al-Rashid, the great Cal- Abbasid Caliph, gives, one, gives an elephant to Charlemagne. So that must have come via, via India. So there must be an elephant, a well-established, yeah. But this is the first elephant to arrive in England since the, the time of the Romans. Hold on. Since the time of the Romans? Do we know the Romans had elephants? Uh, it, well, it's, it, it's claimed that Caesar brought an elephant. Why would he bother? Why would he bother? So that's perhaps not entirely. And it seems that Claudius rode into Colchester on an elephant, so they brought one over to impress the locals. That seems just immensely implausible to me. Don't you think? No, I like to think that that's what happened. Okay. <laughs> okay you debunk when it suits you and then when it doesn't suit you you the, the romans definitely had access to elephants yeah you know i'm sure at some point there are elephants in. i don't believe Britain. anybody has ever ridden into colchester on an elephant <laughs> well, <laughs> you and your skepticism um so but this establishes the idea that uh, a king should properly have animals wild animals exotic animals yeah. um and Edward I, who is Henry III's son, he basically creates kind of permanent facilities for this menagerie. Um, and it's a, a, a tower that is now demolished that was just beyond the drawbridge. Uh, and because it had lions, it was called the Lion Tower. Um, and this tradition of keeping animals there lasted throughout the Middle Ages, through the Tudor period, um, into the Stuart period. So um, James I is very keen on it. So when he comes down from Scotland, he loves the fact that he owns a, basically owns a menagerie. So he improves it. He refurb and James I refurbishes um, the the setting so that people can actually come and watch um, the lions prowl around and drink and eat and things like that. So it's a it's a bit like so a zoo. That's a zoo. I mean, that's, yeah, that's... It's, it's starting to turn into a zoo. And so there are lions there. There are leopards. There are eagles. There are pumas. There's a tiger uh, and there's a jackal. Um, so. James loves everything that London offers, all the kind of stuff yeah. that he hadn't been able to get in, in Scotland. And absolutely, a menagerie is part of it. But no more polar bears, Tom, sure. No more polar bears. And so this menagerie lasts through the into the 18th century, but it's starting to become a bit kind of scuffy. And into the 19th century, 1824, the RSPCA is founded. 
well before you get any charities devoted to ending cruelty to children, for instance. Well, I mean, the British famously care more about dogs than the humans. So much more concerned with animals. Um, and in 1826, do you know who is constable of the Tower of London? Is it Duke of Wellington? It is the Duke of Wellington. How did you know that? Um, I've just been secretly reading up on it. On a oh, Dominic, that's cheating. That's cheating. <laughs> know, anyway, cheating, so right? so he 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 basically <laughs> decides that that you know the Tower of London is not a place for animals. And so that's odd 100... for the Duke of Wellington because he's so reactionary. <laughs> well, on this occasion, on this occasion, he is uh, looking to the future, and so yeah. he sends it off to the newly built Regent's Park. So they've been built this great park uh, at the end of Regent Street, um, built by the Prince Regent, uh, and this is a much better place for the Duke of Wellington decides for animals. And so 150 of them get sent there. And then in 1828, a zoo opens. So London zoo opens in Regent's park. And um, seven years later, the menagerie gets closed for good. So all the animals are cleared out of the tower of London and it stops, you know, that's the end. It's very sad. So um, that's the history of the menagerie in the tower of London, but there's one intriguing further detail. So we have, one of the themes of this week has been ghosts. Yeah. So we mentioned the Cock Lane ghost, the ghosts, uh, the ghost of Prior here in um, Saint Bartholomew's. Uh, lots of ghosts. The ghost of uh, the ghost of Skiffle. <laughs> the, ghost of Skiffle. Yes, the ghost of Skiffle. <laughs> um, but in 1816, uh, a century. So I, I assume it was, would, would it be a beef eater, um, a guard of the Tower of London? I guess it might be. Yeah. Um, anyway, he is standing. Um, by where the, the crown jewels are kept. And suddenly he sees looming from out of the, the door that leads into the, uh, in, into the jewel room. He sees the figure of an enormous bear, an enormous bear. And so he raises his bayonet to try and stop it. And the bear just goes straight through the bayonet through him and vanishes. And the guard, the beef eater collapses, uh, comes to, uh, says what he's seen. Obviously they assume he's drunk. Yeah. So they fetch like the a doctor. So the, yes, like the elephant. So the doctor uh, confirms that he wasn't drunk, uh, and the, the poor man dies shortly afterwards. Of shock, of fright, shock, of terror. So what was the what was this ghost? What was the ghost of the bear? Could it have been the polar bear, perhaps? Maybe. Who knows? Or could it have been the ghost of a bear that had been given to George the Third by Ooh. the Hudson Bay Company? Uh, much and George III was very disappointed with this bear because he'd wanted clothes, you know, because Hudson Bay Company produced. He wanted like amazing, fur, a nice fur coat, yeah, or a nice fur coat or hat or something like that. Yeah. So he's very disappointed. He got a bear uh, that was called Old Martin and was very very grumpy. Right. Um, so that was kept in the Tower of London. So maybe it was the ghost of Old Martin, but um, it it has been argued by London parapsychologists that perhaps this this was the ghost of. Uh, a, a bear that had lived in the Thames estuary way back when Britain was home to bears and other such wild animals, so lions and mammoths and you don't like really that. tend to get prehistoric ghosts, though, do you? I think that's uh, the most are implausible. you a leading London parapsychologist, Dominic? Um, no, but well, I think... you've already, you, your scepticism is out of control. <laughs> <laughs> Rein it in. Yeah. You've scoffed at the idea that the Emperor Claudius rode on an elephant into Colchester. I have. I have scoffed at and that. And now you're scoffing at the idea that the ghost scene in the Tower of London might yeah. be the ghost of a, an ancient cave bear or something like that. I, I think Who knows, Dominic? We don't know. We don't know. It's to a me, mystery. 
it sounds like it's the ghost of old Martin. That's my theory. That's, your, that's what you're going for. So sometimes in this podcast, we like to address historical mysteries. We've done The Princess in the Tower. Richard III did it. And I'm going to put my neck on the line again and say, I think this is the ghost of old Martin because the polar bear, I don't see what motive the polar bear has for well, haunting. Well, I think you're right. I think you're right because also the, the, the signal thing about a polar bear is that it's white. And right. this is not mentioned. Yeah, he would have said it was a ghost of a white bear, unless I suppose the ghosts ghosts tend to be white anyway. No, only so Scooby might... Doo. <laughs> I, I don't know. If I... Do you know who would who would resolve this? Who? Doctor Johnson, Ghost Hunter. Yes, he would. <laughs> he would. Um, yeah. So Amazon. Again, so if anyone from Amazon is listening to this, TV producers, please do not ignore this brilliant idea. Right. Anyway, if, so that's my that's my choice. That's great. So our next our next moment, which we'll do after the break, is much less TV. Well, although there has been a TV program about it, yeah. that's tantalising. Okay, that's we'll come exciting. back after the break and find out what Dominic's got for you. We we'll see you then. See you then. Hello, welcome back to the rest is history. Uh, the very last section of our London week, um, and today we are looking at events or episodes that have happened in the history of the British capital. Um, we've had Henry III being given a polar bear in the first half. That was my choice. And now, Dominic, what's your choice? Well, Tom, we've had a lot in this week about people coming to London, about people moving to London, about people bringing bears to London, or elephants or whatever they might be, baboons or lions or whatever. So I thought we'd end by people getting out of London. So you will no doubt know as a, as a top Londoner, uh, what was the, fir- the world's first underground railway? Do you know? I do, Metropolitan Line. It was the Metropolitan Line. So the Metropolitan Line um, opens in 1863, uh, has gas-lit wooden carriages, and it's hauled by steam locomotives. And, um, and it's um, the setting for a Sherlock Holmes story, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. And it's sort of very much redolent of, of that sort of Holmesian London yeah. Um, but also London, you know, in the era just after the Great Exhibition. So London, when it's the absolute sort of, Imperial it's the world's, capital. yeah, it's the yeah. world's metropolis. Exactly. Um, so the Metropolitan Railway, as it was then called, um, as you said, it goes from basically the city to Baker Street, Paddington. Um, but then they they start extending it very quickly. So by 1864, it has reached Hammersmith in West London. By 1877, it has reached Richmond, um, and then and then the line, then the line starts to go out north into the sort of countryside of what's then Middlesex. So it goes to Harrow in 1880, Winston Churchill's old school, and eventually it gets as far as a place called Verney Junction in Buckinghamshire. So at that point, what we now think of as part of the London tube system or part of the London underground system. It extends more than 50 miles out of London to the northwest, all the way into rural, very rural Buckinghamshire. So you, if you think about the map, for, especially for people who are from overseas, who aren't mess, massively familiar with London's public transport system, uh, you have this artery going out of London, northwest into what are called the home counties. So this is sort of affluent, um, semi-rural England, southern England. Uh, so the counties of Middlesex. Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire. So the line goes out. People playing tennis, isn't it? And stockbrokers and 
Exactly. Well, we'll come to how they start doing all that because the Metropolitan Railway doesn't just have the land around the railway. It's it's been allowed. It's been it's legislation setting it up has allowed it to keep land to buy and keep land that it thinks it may use later. So it's basically accumulated much more land than it than it needs, and it's and that's running along this railway. And they start to think, well, how can we make this? Because it's a private company. How can we? you know basically get this get all this land to turn us a pretty profit and the obvious way is to build housing so with the development of the railways you have the development of commuting so people are coming into town on the railway and working in london then going back out to the countryside obviously is this the first time it's happened in the world do you think something like this is this another london first I think it probably is, Tom, because where else will you have – I mean, I suppose at roughly the same period you would have had people commuting into Paris. Paris and maybe New York. Yeah, or um, maybe commuting into major – yeah, New York or major cities in Germany. So you get the sense with all this that, that it is something new. Yeah, it is. Absolutely, it is new. And the Metropolitan – and it's driven it's, – it's both driven by demand but also by supply. So the Metropolitan um, Railway kind of directors – they absolutely want to – they have this land, which they've held on to, and they want people to to live in it, to, to build – they want to build houses on it, people to live there and to take their railway, and they will basically make loads of money. Um, so they set up, they, they set up a, a company to start what they call their surplus lands committee to start building estates, housing estates, so late Victorian Edwardian housing estates. So the first one is built in Pinner in sort of northwest London, in 1900 and the the people who are running the line the metropolitan line are thinking all the time about how to encourage custom so what they want to do is they want to get people to use their railway so not just people coming into london but people in london to use their railway to go out of london and they want to kind of sell them the area on either side of the railway to sell the beauty of it and the benefits of it so that they will buy houses there and then they'll be dependent on their railway for the rest of their lives yeah brilliant um, so they start producing, they have their own, I mean, it seems a weird thing for a, I mean, certainly would have seemed a weird thing at the time for a, a railway line to do. They have their own publicity department that produce leaflets and posters and particularly from about, I think it's 1908 or so, something round about that anyway, Edwardian period, they produce a, a booklet, a guide, a guide to the extension line as they call it. And that guide is basically a guidebook. It tells you where to stay. This pub does a lovely pie there's a lovely walk here, some nice woods, get off at, you know, Chesham or whatever, or Amersham or any of these sort of places, have a stroll around. Isn't it lovely? And maybe you could buy a house. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's it, it's obviously going to be a hit because it's sort of complete. It, 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 it taps into the sort of zeitgeist of the Edwardian era, which is um, a huge growth of suburbs, growth of you know people becoming richer and richer more affluent middle classes and so on but also this fascination with the countryside and with this sort of vanishing and this and is this, this is kind of merchant ivory film land um sort of yes i suppose so Tennis yeah ports, white linen suits well that's the sort of the dream that they're selling you basically that you'll have your own little version of that and the the, the real moment that i want to sort of um, focus on is in 1915 it's been delayed because of the war, but in 1915, they renamed their guidebook. Uh, so it was the guide to the extension line, and they call it the guide to Metro Land. 
Mm. And that that term Metroland is coined in 1915, and it become and it immediately becomes. It doesn't just the thing that's interesting about it is it doesn't just refer to that area running into the home counties out to the northwest of London, but it becomes absolutely redolent of a a cultural kind of atmosphere and a sort of political and economic atmosphere. So, the Metroland guidebook, and you can get them, you can or you can find bits of them online. They're selling you the joys of nature and all the wo- lovely woods. You know, it sort of says at one point, it's sort of the Chiltern Hills are part of it. So it says at one point, each lover of Metroland may well have his own favourite wood, beech, and coppice, all tremulous green loveliness in spring and russet and gold in October. So this is obviously aimed at Londoners. Come out, you'll have your own favourite wood, you get the train, Dare go off and have... smog. All exactly. Kind of yeah. All of this. All of this. And what they're selling you is this kind of Arcadia. So it's the same Arcadia in some ways that you see in The Wind and the Willows, that you see in, I don't know, the poetry of Edward Thomas or something, his poem Adelstrop, in which, of course, he gets off the train, or he's on the train in Gloucestershire, and he sees the, has, hears the birds singing and all that stuff. It's the Arcadia that you get the same period Tolkien is writing The Hobbits, and then later The Lord of the Rings. This sort of idealised rural England um, that is consumed a by... A kind of escape from the Industrial Revolution. Exactly, by urban people. Made possible by the Industrial Revolution. Exactly yeah. that. Exactly that. So in a, way, a weird way, you could you could say it was kind of Disneyland, rural England yeah. that is being created. But they also want to sell the houses. So as soon as they produced the, the booklet, they they really start... Um, they start buying up more land. They buy it. Start in places that now, to a lot of our listeners who know London or who know... Um, England will sound incredibly humdrum. So Wembley, Rickmansworth, Neesden in particular. Neesden becomes a great symbol of this. Joke, doesn't it? Yeah. So these things that are kind of a joke because they're seen as as quintessentially kind of banal and suburban. But if you go to those places, if you get the Metropolitan Line get off, the houses, lots of kind of Tudor Beethan houses, so they're, they're built in, let's say, the 1920s in this deliberately retro kind of cottagey style and they are sold to people as this is your own little country villa. This is your own little country house. Um, so you've got a kind of bay window and you've got the steep roof and all that sort of stuff. You, a short stroll will take you to the lovely park. There's a golf course. There may be an art deco cinema um, built in the 1920s or the 1930s on the high street at the place where you're going. So it's this sort of world of it's aspirational. Um, it is suburban. It's sort of genteel. The houses are all called things like the laurels or the oaks and things like that. And actually, what it becomes, what Metroland also becomes resident of, very much a friend of the show, Tom, uh, Stanley Baldwin. Stan, this is Stanley yeah. Baldwin's Britain. So yeah. 1920s, 1930s Britain. Because Baldwin's most single most famous speech is when he gave this um, 1924, so the peak of Metroland, he gives this speech saying, to me, England is the country, and the country is England. When I ask myself what I mean by England, what I think of England when I'm abroad, and he goes on blah, 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 what he thinks of is the sounds of England, the tinkle of the hammer on the anvil in the country smithy, the corn crake on a dewy morning, the sound of the scythe against the whetstone, and the sight of a plough team coming over the brow of a hill, the sight that has been England since England was a land. And always will be. Yeah. But the one eternal sight of England, he says. And the thing is that even as he's saying this in the 1920s, it's utterly faded and it's and it's gone. But he is saying it to, I mean, the, his audience, his electorate, 
are the people who live in those houses. Yeah. So, so nuclear families um, who are upwardly mobile, who have bought new houses on the estates, basically built and provided by the Metropolitan Railway. But this is one of the great housing booms, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And lots of people, probably even listening to this podcast, without really thinking about it, are actually living in Stanley Baldwin's Britain. They're living in Metroland. They're living in 1920s, or houses built between the Edwardian period and the Second World War. Yeah. All those sort of suburban ribbon developments. And then then after the war, um, you have Betjeman's... So what happens, Tom, is that um, the phrase Metroland becomes very nationally known very quickly. So in Evelyn Waugh's books, uh, there's a character who marries Viscount Metroland. She becomes Lady <laughs> right. Metroland in kind and of vile it, bodies Is it starting stuff. to become a joke then? Well, it is, you see, it is a joke to intellectuals. To in, and it's always a joke to intellectuals. So uh sneery metropolitan type sneery exactly so if you've read i think we've mentioned it before on this um podcast john carey's book the intellectuals and the masses which is all about the kind of intellectual turn against the masses at the beginning of the 20th century what all the things they dislike about the masses suburbs the art deco cinemas the golf courses all of those Mm. things that actually people like Mm. um they are emblematic of Metroland and they're emblematic of everything that intellectuals, writers, avant-gardists, Virginia Woolfists, people of that kind hate. And so Metroland does exactly that, become a bit of a sort of a, a, um, a punching ball. Well, I, I mean, Pinner is still a... Pinner, Neasden. Neasden is, um, is where uh, football fans, ashen-faced... Ron Nee, the manager of Neasden Town. Yeah, in Private Eye. So, so that's kind of been swallowed up by slightly more low-rent suburbia. Yes, I suppose to some Whereas extent. Whereas Pinner is, is... Pinner is slightly more genteel, isn't it? Slightly more genteel, but still a bit common, if you're, if you're T.S. Eliot. Well, I think it's not fair to say that, that the further you get out of London along the Metropolitan Line, the more genteel it becomes. But the, every, every stop on the, metro, on the Metropolitan Line is a, a kind of lightning rod for different shades of British snobbery. That's would, right. would, you, would that be fair? Yeah, I think that's probably fair. You kind of sneer at different regions for different reasons, you know, diff- different reasons. At Amersham, which I'm sure is absolutely lovely and in the Chilterns, um, to a lot of people would just seem Middle England, utterly boring, you know, sort of, I think you're absolutely right, Chorley Wood or yeah. whatever, all these sort of yeah. places. Um, but the one person, of course, who's, a, who's a, as it were, an intellectual who champions this ahead of his time, as you said, is John Betjeman. So the funny thing is that Betjeman isn't from Metroland. He grew up in Highgate. Um, but he's writing about it when it's really gone. So they, they stopped using the phrase, the Metropolitan Railway, stopped using the phrase in the 1930s. That actually shows you how quickly it's become kind of... Declassé. Yeah, declassé, exactly. And then once from the mid-1930s onwards, the Metropolitan Railway basically ceases to exist. It's, it's absorbed into London transport. It sort of is just a, to a lot of people, it just seems like a sort of, you know, they forget about it. They forget it ever happened. But Betjeman is writing poems about the line and about the places along the line quite early on. So 1954, he has a poem called Middlesex. I'll just read one verse. Very Betjeman, for people who don't know Betjeman. Gaily into Ryslip Gardens runs the red electric train. With a thousand tars and pardons, daintily alights a lane hurries down the concrete station with a frown of concentration, out into the outskirts edges, where a few surviving hedges keep alive our lost Elysium, rural Middlesex again. So 
Betterman is kind of alive to the the vanishing rural nature of it, um, but he he doesn't sneer at the suburbs. He sort of he's immu- he's he's wry about them, but he sort of takes them seriously at the same time. And then in 1973, when Betterman has become a bit of a he's become a national treasure. Uh, so he's this sort of cuddly teddy bear conservationist poet laureate. The BBC asked him to make a film about Metroland, um, which he does. So you can see the film online. Um, he gets on the train in London with a guidebook from the 1920s, and he basically just takes the the line all the way to the end. I mean, he has this fantastic line. He says, Metroland is a child of the First World War forgotten by the second. And off he goes. He starts at Baker Street. With this, if you ever got off at Baker Street Station, there's a big kind of neo sort of classical apartment block above um, Baker Street called Chilton Court. So he starts by talking about that. Then he goes to all these places St. John's Wood, Neasden, Wembley, Harrow, Pinner, Chorleywood, Amersham. And he goes all the way. And it's this beautiful film, very 70s, very melancholy, kind of nostalgic. So it's funny watching it because you're watching multiple eras at once. You're, yeah. you're watching somebody from the 70s. Um, talking about a sort of project from the really the 1910s and 20s, but which was itself the product of a line that was built in the 1860s. And also in the 70s, I mean, that's a period where a lot of Victorian and Edwardian architecture is being demolished. So most notoriously, the um, the Euston Arch, which Benjamin yes. was very upset about. Exactly. This great neoclassical um, structure outside the Euston Railway Station. And what's even better, Tom, is that that documentary, Metroland, goes out on the BBC, and I think it's February 1973, and I think I'm right in saying it goes out on the on the day that it goes out, there's been a rail strike. <laughs> well, um, it's just perfect timing. So he goes all the way along the line, and, and this is the perfect point for it to end. He goes to Verney Junction in rural Buckinghamshire, which by then has closed. It's no longer, a, and, he, and he goes, and there's nothing there. Oh. And the final line of the whole film, he, he says, um, grass triumphs, and I must say I'm rather glad. And that's the end. Brilliant. So um, that's the perfect note on which to end a yes. series about London. So I hope you've enjoyed our, our London week. Um, thanks very much. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it my brain is occupied by the romans it's like gall if you want to hear more of my chat with tom give walking the dog a listen this week and while you're there you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of ricky gervais jack whitehall and jimmy carr what's that raymond yes the rest is history did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history no you weren't in it most spoilt dog in history maybe